I could feel the darkness. This was my first experience in Keene. I walked along the main square in the center of town, and it was a gorgeous setting, but then I saw it. Not one, but two witchcraft shops right in the center of town. Even the barbershop had witchcraft and spiritualism paraphernalia in the window. Keene is a beautiful, quintessential New England town. When people go there, they are often charmed by the landscape. It has the gorgeous colors in the fall, the lovely rolling hills, and even a mountain close by. But when I'm there, all I can see is people and a town without a single independent Baptist church in the city limits. Keene is located in the southwest corner of New Hampshire and has a population of around 25,000 people. It is the county seat of Cheshire County, which has around 78,000 people. New Hampshire and Vermont, though, boast themselves to be the most anti-religious and unchurched region in the whole country. Intellectualism has become their new god. The few churches that are there are mere social clubs that boast their toleration of sin and wickedness. My name is Zach Shives, and my family, the Shives family, are excited to be sent out of New Heights Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to plant a church in the community of Keene, New Hampshire. I was saved at the age of 11 while attending the Tulsa Baptist Temple in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hi, I'm Kate, and I was saved at the age of 12 at Buchanan Avenue Baptist Church in Sioux City, Iowa. I've always had a heart for the ministry while growing up, but I surrendered to the ministry after a missions trip while I was a teenager. It was also while I was a teenager that I first went to New England and was burdened for the people there. And I surrendered to the ministry as a teenager at Silver State Baptist Youth Camp in Colorado. We both attended the Heartland Baptist Bible College in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we graduated in May of 2014. After graduation, I had the privilege to serve on staff for six and a half years at the Bible Baptist Church in Bridgeport, Texas. While there, I led the children's ministries, bus ministry, youth ministry, music, outreach, and any other way I could to glorify the Lord. In early 2021, we began to pray about planting a church in that region. The Lord opened up our eyes to the need in New Hampshire specifically, and then to the town of Keene. As we go to Keene, our goals are simple. We plan to begin with a Bible study and consistent outreach in the community. In short order, we pray and trust that God will build his church. We will disciple those that are saved. And then overall, we aim just to be a light in this dark community. This is a lifetime endeavor. To see a church start, grow, and thrive could take much time. However, we hold to Jesus' promise when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Will you pray for us? And will you prayerfully consider partnering with us to reach the needy city of Keene, New Hampshire? That's where God's called us to go. That's where we have a heart to go. And your pastor, whenever we first met him, we had actually just 
few hours before that gotten off the airplane coming back from our trip there. And uh, truly, we got on that airplane and we left our hearts back in New England. And I uh, can't wait to get back and see what God does. Uh, does anybody have any questions about the, where, what we're doing, where we're going? Uh, they, and I will tell you this, they do speak a foreign language over there. <laughs> so we'll just get that out of the way right from the start. <laughs> but there, are there any questions perhaps you might have for us about what God is doing over in New Hampshire? Yes, sir. Um, it is going to be intellectualism. Now, let me clarify a little bit with that. I'm not against people being intellectual and things like that, but what I mean by that is there are the atheists and people like that that are, have basically said we're just, we know too much. We're too proud to acknowledge that there's a God, and I do believe that that will probably be our biggest obstacle. There is a liberal arts college there in Keene, and so it, the entire town kind of has that atmosphere over it. And so I do believe that that right now will be our biggest obstacle. And, um, but you know what? God loves them too. So, and, and you know what? This, the Bible has good answers for those questions. And so if we just know those answers and then we humbly give it and then let God's word do its work, then we know that we'll see people saved. So even among that group. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. It's actually not terrible. It's really not. Uh, the median home over there is around 250000 which all things considered for New England is not too bad. Now, I will say this. The property taxes are where they get you. Uh, for instance, if you were to buy a $200,000 home, the property taxes for one year will be just under ten grand. So that's where they get you is the property taxes. So, <laughs> yeah. So again, the overall prices of the real estate aren't terrible, but yeah, the, the, they'll find ways of getting you <laughs> somewhere else. But overall, it's actually not too bad. And we've, um, we are looking at some properties. I, I want to be careful to not be too hasty to buy before there's people. So we probably will just rent a place, perhaps a facility like a, a veterans hall or something like that initially until we have more people to actually build a building with. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, how far is that down? We are right at, right, 50%? Okay, right at 50%. So we have a unique situation even with that. Our sending church for the first year that we're there are actually going to pay us a salary that's going to support our living expenses for just the first year that we're there. And so after that, that's whenever we'll start living on some of the other income that we have. But our heart is that for the first year, that all the money that we get from churches goes straight to the church plan itself. Inflation might say otherwise, but that's what I want to do. So and that's what our heart is to do. And, uh, but right now we're at about 50% of our goal, which is right at 5,500 is our goal. And so we're right at 50% of that. And we're on pace to hit it, by the way. We are on pace to hit it, and we will be there in November. So... Any other questions? Yes, sir. So I have personally been up there twice, but we only we took one survey trip. And um, my the first time I went up there was whenever I was a teenager. I mentioned that in the video. Went up there with my grandparents. I'm originally from Maryland. 
So I went to go visit my grandparents in Maryland. They said, hey, let's jump up to New England for a couple days. And I saw it firsthand. And it was shortly after I surrendered to the ministry. And uh, while my grandparents were enjoying all the historical sites, all I could see is where are the churches? And let me explain what I mean by that. They have church buildings up there, but a lot of them are repurposed as other things. Uh, it's a popular thing to take an old church building and repurpose it to be a house or a business of some kind. And so they have a lot of the beautiful church architecture, but it's not really churches. And uh, that broke my heart. I remember leaving there telling my grandfather, I said, someday I'm going to come back and plant a church up here. Well, here we are. So on our way. And uh, so, again, I have been up there twice personally and we'll be up there the next time in august um, to do some business up there and also to present at a few churches that are up there because there are a few good churches there not in Keene, but in the state itself yes sir It is. It is both, and actually, I didn't even show you half of the influence of the town. I actually mentioned it to your pastor. If you were to drive around the town, even just in the neighborhoods itself, you'll see witchcraft symbolism on the houses, driving through there. It's, it is everywhere in the town. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was in El Paso three weeks ago. And there was a gentleman in the church that we were at that was from Worcester, Massachusetts, which is close by. And as soon as he found out I was going to Keene, he said, oh, you're going to which city? I said, okay, yeah, yes, sir. And apparently he grew up there in the 60s, and it was known as which city all the way back then. So it's had that atmosphere for a long time. But, um, you know, God loves them. And... And interacting with them, and I actually have some family members that have dabbled with witchcraft, and I've seen people get saved out of witchcraft, and really, you just love them, and you just tell them what God says, and you don't be mean about it, but you just say, you stand on truth, because we have the truth, and you love them, and then God's word will do its work, and uh, so again, it's scary, but God's bigger, so we're excited. Yes, sir. So initially, whenever we first get there, we're going to want to do probably a mass mailer initially because we're getting there in November. Now, let me just explain this. They get a lot of snow up there. Uh, so basically, they start getting snow right at around about beginning of November when we were getting there, and it goes all the way until Mother's Day. And so door knocking is almost non-existent during that time. So we're going to do a mass mailer to start with, and then it's going to be a lot of us just being in the community, going and just doing everything we can to meet people. We actually already have some contacts in the town that we've been able to meet from uh, either personally or because of family members that have pointed us to other family members there in Keene. And so it's, it's been neat. We've got a, name, a list of about 25 people already that we are going to do everything we can to reach out to as soon as we get there and we've already reached out to quite a few of them and so again we're just going to see what happens there and um but that's 
how we're starting initially with the Bible study, and then probably our push is to actually have a launch service in the spring. Initially, I'd like to do a local area. Um, a, I'm not opposed to doing it in our home or something like that, but I would like to do it in a local area. Again, there's a veterans hall. It's a Veterans of Foreign Wars has a chapter there, and we can rent their facility for $200 a day that we need it. And so initially, it'll probably just be one day a week. That's what my pastors advised me to do. And so we'll probably do that. And then if we do beyond that, it would be in our home. And so... Uh, that's what our hope is to start with. Any other questions? Great questions, by the way. Any other questions? All right. Well, how about we go ahead and open our Bibles, and uh, we'll get right into it. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jonah in chapter number 4. Book of Jonah in chapter number 4. Now, it, we'll stand here in a moment, but as we typically hear from the book of Jonah, whenever we often talk about the book of Jonah, we often use the phrase, Jonah and the whale, yes. And yet the whale is only mentioned in four short sentences in the entire book. I've learned in studying that the whale is not the thing in the book of Jonah. Uh, sometimes we can have what we could call a veggie tales filter whenever it comes to the book of Jonah. And I'm not necessarily against veggie tales, but we don't get our theology from veggie tales. And we certainly don't learn how to interpret passages of the Bible from Veggie Tales either. But rather, I've learned that there's a very mature message right here in the book of Jonah that God wants his people to know that it's not just a children's story, but there's a message for God's people here. So if you are physically able, if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will read Jonah and chapter number four. Jonah chapter four is also, you could call it the filter in which the rest of the book of Jonah is to be interpreted. If you get chapter 4, you understand the rest of the book properly. It makes the rest of the book make sense. So in verse number 1 it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Well, what was he so angry about? Well, in the verses before, a whole city repents. Can you imagine being upset about that? Brother Johnson, I don't think you'd be upset if more repented. Shocked, perhaps, but not... <laughs> but not angry about it. Verse 2, And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? And he doesn't answer a word. Instead, in verse 5, it says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. The exact opposite reaction of verse 1. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah. 
that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? And that's the story. Well, how about we ask God to help us out, and we'll get right into it. Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have to be in your house this evening. And Lord, we do pray that you would meet with us. Nobody here came to hear from a man, but we came to hear from you. So Lord, I do pray that you'd be lifted up, that your word would be clear, and that we would understand what you are trying to tell us. And Lord, I do pray for your people, every one of us in here, Lord, that we would have the courage not just to be hearers of the word, but God, that we would have the courage to be doers of it. So Lord, I do pray that you'd be glorified now in this service, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Well, in April of 1995, there was two men filled with hate and filled with rage loaded a rider moving truck with 4,800 pounds of homemade explosives. Uh, everybody in this room would be well versed with the story. Around 9 o'clock one morning, one of the men, Timothy McVeigh, parked the truck in front of the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Shortly after 9 o'clock, the explosives were detonated, and for people in this area, life has really never been the same ever since. 168 people were killed, and more than 680 people were injured in the blast. 19 children were killed, 15 of whom were a part of the America's Kids Daycare Center located on the second floor of the building. I actually used to work with the son of the fireman who first stumbled on the daycare on that day. And the last time I saw Mr. Williams, the fireman, he had told me that he had still not had a good night's rest ever since that day. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Terry Nichols later referred to the deaths of the children specifically as merely collateral damage for their cause. I'm sure we all remember as we watched them in horror saying that in that interview. Uh, Can I just say it this way? That's hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, That's almost unfathomable. How could anybody become so wicked, so vile, that they would refer to the deaths of children as merely collateral damage? And yet, I believe that there's a question that needs to be asked out of every person here, and not just here, but really of Christians all over the world. It's something that we need to think about. The question is this, should men and women like Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, men and women like them, receive an opportunity to receive God's grace and God's mercy? Now we know what the theological answer is, but what answer does our flesh give? It's a much harder sell, isn't it? 
Now, we know what Jonah would say. His actions speak pretty loudly in the book. He would say, absolutely not. There's no way that those two men, with all of their wickedness and all their violence, there's no way that they should receive an opportunity to receive God's grace and God's mercy. So, well, how can you say such a thing? How can we be so bold to say what Jonah would think about this? Well, God had called Jonah to go to a people that were also wicked, vile, violent, and infamous in world history for the psychological warfare that they would inflict on the people that they had conquered. You see, God had called him to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Again, an empire infamous in world history. And so, when God called Jonah to go, what is it that he did? Well, he ran in the opposite direction. And let's not say we blame him too much. I think a lot of us would have done the same thing. He ran in the opposite direction. But let's find out why he ran in the opposite direction. So he ran in the opposite direction, and of course when he did that, he went down to Joppa, got into a boat, going to Tarshish, which was the other end of the known world at that time. And when he went down into the boat, it starts a backwards narrative. Because everybody in this book does the exact opposite of what we think they should do. And so he goes down into the boat, goes out to the, sh the sea, and he goes to sleep. While he's asleep, God sends a storm. And then we find Jonah asleep while the pagan sailors are praying. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And then it gets even better. They wake him up, and of course they say, well, rise, sleeper. And so they get him up. They find out that he's the reason for the storm. Of course, we know God's the source. And they say, now what can be done about this? Well, let's not skip over his reaction. Eh, just throw me overboard. Do we realize what that is? A deliberate attempt to commit suicide than going to the people that God had called him to reach. And so they eventually they throw him overboard. And of course, uh, we find that the, the, it is the sea and the storm is calmed. And then we find the pagan sailors praying again and giving an offering unto the Lord. And the Bible says that they fear the Lord. Meanwhile, Jonah still doesn't fear the Lord. And so as he goes overboard, we would think and he would think certain death. But God prepares a fish. And it swallows Jonah. And then what do we find happen when Jonah is in the belly of the great fish? What is he doing? Well, we find him in chapter 2 crafting this great, elaborate, sophisticated Hebrew poetry. Exactly what I would be doing in his shoes. Very backwards. And while chapter 2, he says a lot of flowery things, really chapter 2 is a very confusing chapter. It almost reads like one of the sermons that Job's friends had given him over in the book of Job. Because he says a lot of nice things, a lot of good sounding things, but there's something strangely absent from his prayer. There's never any repentance. And so, but God in his grace commands the fish to spit up Jonah on the shore so that we know that that happens. And Jonah has the opportunity to obey. And he does. Sort of. Sort of. You see, according to the filter that we get from chapter 4, which we read, 
really everything that Jonah does should be looked at in a skeptical light. And so what are, is it that we're supposed to look at skeptically, perhaps, in chapter 3? Well, there's details given, which, by the way, details in the Bible are not just given for grins and giggles, just for filler. And there's a detail given that Nineveh was a great city of three days' journey. But Jonah goes, a day's journey. Now, I, I understand. Some people think, well, perhaps Jonah went right to the town square. Well, did he? If we're supposed to look at everything he does in a skeptical, skeptical light, where is it that he went? Well, perhaps he didn't go that far in. And then, on top of that, notice his sermon, an eight-word sermon. Oh, it's a doozy. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Peace out, see you later. And he goes on his way. Uh, now, does that sermon strike anybody else as strange? It ought to. Uh, some people said, well, surely he said more than that. Well, did he? The text doesn't record it. And according to what the Bible gives us, it's one of the shortest sermons in the entire Bible. There's not one mention of God at all in the entire thing. Not one time does it mention why God is upset with them. And strangely, it never offers them an opportunity to repent. As a matter of fact, it's the only time in the entire Bible in which an opportunity or in which a message of judgment is given without the opportunity for repentance given. Could it be that the man of God was deliberately attempting to sabotage the message of God? It certainly looks that way. But we find out that God's message is always more powerful than his messenger because the whole city hears about it and they repent. And then word gets to the most powerful man in the world at that time, the king of Nineveh. What would we expect him to do? Squash Jonah on the spot. But no, he repents. And he calls for everyone else to repent. And then in verse number 8, even for the cows to repent. That's a bit extreme. But then there's a sad verse in chapter 3, verse number 9, when the king says, who can tell? If God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. Who can tell? Well, there was somebody who knew the answer to that. And that was Jonah. And so as we get into chapter 4, chapter 4 really is a contrast between the grace, love, and mercy of God and the hatred and anger of Jonah. Find that Jonah is angry because God's actions are consistent with his character. So verse 1, we saw that he's angry. Verse 2, he tells us why. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. He said, I knew this is what was going to happen. That's why I ran away. I knew all the way back then when God called me that if I went there, they would repent, and God just couldn't help himself but to forgive them. And then he goes on in the rest of the verse to quote the most quoted verses of the Bible within the Bible. Did you know that the Bible quotes itself occasionally? The most quoted verses of the Bible within the Bible is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which is a dissertation on the character of God. Every good Jewish boy and girl would have known that. So he begins to quote it here. He says, For I knew that thou art a gracious God, 
Are you thankful for God's grace? Jonah had been a recipient of God's grace. God's grace and just what we've told you already in the book of Jonah, God's grace had been all over Jonah's life. And he, it's been all over every person's life that's in this room right here. And then he says, and merciful, slow to anger. You know what that phrase, slow to anger, means? It means it takes a long time for God's anger to heat up. Isn't the Bible complicated? Actually, if you're to look it up in Hebrew, it just means that God is long of nose. So, God, so no, God's not like Pinocchio. No, but simply in the Bible, whenever it talks about somebody being angry, it talks about their face burning hot. Almost like fires coming out their nose. So whenever it says that God is long of nose, it means that it takes a long time for God's anger to heat up. Aren't you thankful for that? None of us would be here if God wasn't slow to anger. And of great kindness, he shows us favor and kindness that none of us deserve. And repentance thee of the evil. So Jonah says, God, that's my problem. You're some cosmic pushover that just can't help but forgive sinners when they repent. Well, to that we should say, praise God. Because if you're saved, there was a day that you got on your knees and you repented. And there was a day that I repented. And in the Bible, when men and women get on their knees and repent, God has a consistent and reliable response. He gives his grace, his mercy, his love, yea, even himself to the truly repentant. But Jonah says, God, that's my problem. I'm so thankful for all the benefits you've given in my life. Your grace, your mercy, the fact that you're slow to anger, your great kindness. But there's a group of people that I've already decided aren't worthy of the same grace that I've received. And so Jonah's reaction is this. It's better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah couldn't stand to live in a world in which God loved his enemies as much as God loved him. And so, really, we're not going to take the time necessarily to expose it, but in the rest of the chapter, God exposes that with the story about how Jonah goes up on the hill and just to see if God would change his mind and destroy the city. And God prepared a gourd to come up over the head of Jonah. And it's really an object lesson to show us that, well, Jonah loves, doesn't love people the way God loves people. Because when God takes away the gourd, his reaction is, it's better for me to die than to live. Really, Jonah? And then God exposes it right to Jonah, right in the last two verses, when he says, you've had pity on a plant. But what about the people, Jonah? What about the people? And so that's the story. Now what are we supposed to do with that? Are we okay with God loving our enemies? And further yet, are we okay with God asking us to love our enemies? Because if we love our enemies the way that God's word demands for us to, then we're going to do everything that we can to reach them. You see, every person in this room has been hurt by somebody. It could be a family member, a co-worker, or it could be a friend that stabbed us in the back. Or it could simply be that we've been offended by a group that we've seen on TV. Or perhaps a nation that we've watched invade another nation for apparently no good reason. Whatever the case, we all have that group of people or perhaps that one individual 
that if God were to say, go reach them, we'd say, I don't know about that, God. Are you sure? Do you want me to go reach them? Well, here's the thing. God has told us to reach them. Have we forgotten that God's word says that we're supposed to go and preach to every creature? Guess who's included in every creature? Not just those that we like, but especially those that we don't like. Have we forgotten that there was a time in which we were the enemies of God? But what did God do when we were his enemies? He came and died, or lived a perfect and sinless life, died on a cruel cross, was buried and rose again three days later, and he did that for those that were his enemies. Do we think that like Jonah, that we have a monopoly on God's grace? Or we're so thankful for the benefits that God's given us. We say, God, I'm so thankful for what you've done for me, but I don't want to give it to them because they've hurt me. I'll say, well, this is a strange missions message. Well, here's the sad reality. There's an unreached people group right here in the United States of America. And who is it? It's those people that God's people have already decided aren't worthy of the same benefits that we've received. And so our answer has been, we'll let somebody else do it. But God didn't just call for them to go reach them, but for us to reach them. Every single one of us. But you know, more than just reaching those we don't like, we have a hard enough time reaching those we do like. We have a hard enough time going across the street and telling the neighbors we do get along with. Talking to the co-workers we do tend to tolerate. We have a hard enough time with that. But listen, church, God didn't just call us to reach those we do like. God has called us to reach everyone, and especially those that we don't. At the beginning, I mentioned the Oklahoma City bombing. Perhaps somebody here knows somebody that's had family that's been affected by that. There was a grandmother that had two grandchildren killed in that blast. And her testimony is that for years she dealt with anger and bitterness over what had happened and even hatred. And I think we can all understand that. But she knew that there was something that she had to do. You see, when Timothy McVeigh was executed a few years back, she found out it didn't change anything in here. So she knew what she had to do. She began to correspond with Terry Nichols. She began to write letters to him and even have one-on-one -on -one meetings with him. And I remember her giving her testimony, and it was this, that she said the purpose of those meetings wasn't to bashing. It wasn't to say, how could you do that to my grandchildren and then refer to them as collateral damage? She said, that wasn't the purpose. She said, but it was to show God's love, to show God's mercy, and to show God's grace with one of the individuals that had hurt her the most. And by her testimony, she said that she led him to the Lord. Now, did he really ever get saved? I don't know. But her reaction was right. But God didn't just call for her to do that. God called for every one of us to do that as well. And so, as we close, I think perhaps the best thing we can do is be reminded of the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter number 5. When Jesus said in verse number 43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And someone might ask, how is it that this text is asking us to be perfect, like our Father which is in heaven? Well, in that he has shown love, grace, and mercy, even to those that were his enemies. And my friends, he's called for us to do the exact same thing. And if we can get that, then we'll understand what the book of Jonah is trying to tell us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, again, we are so thankful for your word. And so thankful that it speaks to us right where we're at. So, Lord, I do pray for each one of your people tonight, every single one of us, myself included. I know that it's easy to perhaps hear some things like this, but God, it's... It's hard to obey it. It's hard to carry it out. So God, I do pray for every one of us, God, that we would have the courage to be doers of the word. So God, I do pray for your people in this time. In Jesus' name.